It's very good to be here, Portland Friends of the Dhamma, and today is the 3rd of December, 2023, and uh, so we had the Q&A session, and I find those those Q&A sessions can get a bit heated sometimes, so that's, uh, you know, issues that are dear to people's hearts, uh, so hopefully I didn't say anything too inflammatory, I apologize if I did, and um, and so uh, that's one of the drawbacks of samsara is that no matter how close we are to somebody or how uh, we might how close of a friend somebody might be how in line with our views somebody might be we're never going to meet somebody who's totally 100 percent seeing things eye to eye with us and that's one of the uh, to be contemplated as one of the defects of of conditioned existence one of the defects of samsara so it gives rise to uh quality that we know as nibida nibida is world weariness so usually world weariness uh cambridge dictionary uh it's a very negative term in the dictionary it actually has been it, maybe they've overheard the monks talking about world world weariness and they put it into the dictionary for 2023 and uh it's a very negative term in the dictionary but in Buddhism, it's a very positive term, actually. It's a precursor to liberation. And it and it doesn't have a version as part of it. So, but in Cambridge Dictionary, world weariness is an absolute aversion and revulsion with the world. <laughs> so it's uh <laughs> And it says, like, has these example sentences, like, Bill had strong world weariness based on his banking transaction or something. <laughs> <laughs> he just turned his back and walked out. So, <laughs> but uh, also, or the terms like dispassion, where we feel like, well, we don't we want to be passionate about life? So, but these are actually very positive terms uh, in Buddhism. So they point to a cooling down of the heart. Nibbana means to cool down. So uh, cooling down of the heart. So that's what we're looking at with all these things that we're doing, all these contemplations we're doing, not just death contemplation, but things like generosity, metta, goodwill practice. So anything that we're doing is we're looking to cool the heart down quite a bit. And a lot of what we do with the meditation, so uh, many of you may have done retreats before, and uh, some of you may may not have done longer retreats, and uh, something that happens when we meditate, and it's good to have meditation techniques. We, have, we take whatever technique we may have learned, whether it's just the Thai forest tradition where we mentally recite Bhutto, Bhut with the in-breath, Do with the out-breath, or Mahasi Sayadaw where we're noting different mental states as they arise or uh, some other technique, whether it's the Vipassana techniques they teach in the Goenka retreats. So uh, whatever technique we're using, uh, what we're going to end up dealing with in the path of meditation is all sorts of uh, what we call karmic baggage. And so uh, I've been part of a kind of a theme I've been reflecting on as of late is that there's, of course, as we know, there's no Buddhism. Uh, the Buddha didn't coin the term Buddhism. Uh, he he said Dhamma Vinaya, which is 
roughly translated as truth and discipline. Or you could say, uh, you could call it like um, the great scholar monk in Thailand, Prapayuto, Somdet Payuto, said that he defines Buddhism as modifying our behavior according to natural truth. So that's his his name for the religion or his description. I've even been thinking it could be called how to deal with your karmic baggage. So uh, ism, how to deal with your karmic baggage ism. <laughs> we could coin that coin that new term. Dot <laughs> org, yeah, dot com. <laughs> so uh, everybody who comes into it, and it's any any Buddhist tradition. So I recently watched a documentary that was done on the different traditions of Buddhism now in China and uh, documenting an ordination in China, in recent China, uh, modern day China was documented and a few monks were interviewed and the, translated into English. And they're saying, well, what do you do now that you're a monk? And you tend to get this answer, well, now I deal with all my karmic baggage. So uh, that's, and that's what we do as practitioners. We just deal with our karmic baggage and everybody's got different karmic baggage. So then this, this Chinese monk is asked, well, you know, how, is there any techniques to deal with it? And say, well, it's just, everybody's got their own karmic baggage. So there's these different techniques, different ways to deal with it and really depends on temperament and whatever character type might be, whether we're more inclined towards anger or more inclined towards desire or more inclined towards thinking a lot, more inclined towards problem solving. So there's these different types of character. And also it depends on our history, our conditioning, even our nationality. We're gonna have different types of conditioning based on our nationalities, what country we were born in. And so the conditioning, say for a Thai person, they're brought up in a Buddhist country is going to be different for someone like myself born here, who's brought up in this, uh, which we could be classed as a Judeo-Christian culture. Um, even if say I've, I've actually never, I never went to church growing up. My parents were just, uh, they, uh, they were non-religious. So I did, the only time I've ever been to mass is as a monk. So our, our neighbors at Abayagiri are, it's a 250 acre Christian monastery founded in 1959. Mount Tabor Holy Transfiguration Monastery is our, our next door neighbors. And uh, I'm, uh, I guess I could say I'm friends with the abbot. He tells people that, uh, he said, me and Ajinyanako are friends because we almost never see each other. <laughs> that's why we're really good friends. So I thought, oh, that's, he's got some wisdom. Okay. That's, <laughs> but uh, we can sh we share a lot because we're both looking after monasteries, <laughs> so we have a a lot in common. Thing, whether whatever religion you're undertaking, it's just human nature. To being in a position of leadership is is the same, I guess, throughout. Uh, beyond these dividing lines of religion and so on, we we share a lot in common. But. Uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, these these qualities that we're uh, that we're trying to develop qualities like generosity and goodwill, and 
these are things that really help us to deal with life as it comes at us. And uh, this term, uh, world weariness, uh, nibida, is, we could also, in, in Thai, there's a word, salot sangwet, which comes from the word sangvega, Pali, which means to have a sense of urgency about practice or a sense of spiritual urgency. And that comes from these contemplations on death and uh, that it could happen anytime. We want to then cultivate our mind to be as wholesome as possible. So there's one sutta, there's one teaching of the Buddha where there's these different characters in the sutta, suttas that appear again and again. One of them is King Pasenadi, and he's actually, I believe he's the same or very similar age to the Buddha. So uh, King Pasenadi, uh, he, he receives a teaching from the Buddha that uh, on death contemplation, that if you imagine that there's these four mountains and you're, you're standing in the center of them and there's these four mountains coming in and crushing everything in their path. These are like the four elements and they're coming from the north, south, east, and west, and they're coming towards you and crushing everything in their path. And these are the elements of earth, water, fire, and air. And what do you do if you know that you're going to be crushed by these four mountains? And then King Basenity says, well, what can I do? You know, I can't stop those four mountains from eventually crushing me. So all I can do is just do live a good life and make merit, do what's righteous and try to help people and do what I can within my power to benefit myself and others. And the Buddha says, yeah, that's, that's a good answer. You have to just do whatever is in your power, take whatever time that you, the short time that we're given to do whatever's to contemplate what's going to be beneficial and then put that into action and do that with our, the short time that we've been given. And so that's what is beneficial is going to be different for everybody. So for myself, I've decided that what's beneficial is becoming a monk and that uh, I've decided to stay as a monk because I've decided over the years that that's going to continue to be beneficial. So I can try to do as a monk, I, can, I still need to do these contemplations. I still need to remind myself to do what's beneficial. I have, as a senior monk, I have various options now. So I've uh, been uh, in the position of being an abbot for five years now. And uh, I had a pretty hard time in those first four years because uh, um, became a like a new leader of an important Ajahn Chah branch monastery. Um, at first I was Ajahn Kurnadamo and I were co-abbots for about two years and then and then he stepped back. So um, there's a, all sorts of pressure and then the pandemic happened and then there's all these views about what should be the best policies for the monastery and we're a big community. So that was very, uh, I did make it through somehow, but uh, that was very uh, draining for me and I did needed a break. So in uh, December of 2022, December of last year, I decided to take a seven month break in Thailand and just stepped back for a while to take stock of things. And uh, during this time in Thailand, uh, I had an opportunity to do a two month solitary retreat in Pak Chong in, in a, a place that's very kind of exclusive to our Sangha, very supportive. 
place where we get supported, can live by myself, get supported with alms food and, and just uh, get a lot of solitude. So I was considering things during this time and I actually considered that uh, I was actually senior enough now that I could not actually go back to a Baigiri and just sort of walk off into the sunset, so to speak. And um, well, you know, it would probably be okay if I did that, you know, they, they'd figure it out. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I thought that would actually be okay to do that. But then I also thought, well, is that the most beneficial thing for myself and others? Even thinking for myself too, is it the most beneficial thing for me to just live on my own and live in retreat long-term? And I thought about it and thought, well, I don't think so because I wouldn't be challenging myself in various ways. And I probably wouldn't be seeing things about myself that I could see in community. So being on my own, yes, it, it does follow this. On the surface, it seems more like the more in line with the Buddha thing to do in line with the Ajans, the great meditation masters of old seems to be more in line with what the right thing to do would be. It's, and the, as an ideal uh, living on my own in retreat is, is more kind of, it makes my ideals feel more satiated, I guess. And, uh, but what's actually going to be beneficial and, but what doesn't, doesn't match my ideals and on the surface maybe doesn't seem like the most righteous thing to do just living in community but actually it is it is the way of benefit so actually dealing with you know my own views and opinions dealing with the views and opinions of others and actually learning how to work with other people takes a lot more letting go than just being able to be by myself and situate things how i like them and then just get more and more into a smaller and smaller confined comfort zone until I have everything exactly the way I want it. It's still not liberation, it's still not the way of happiness. So the way of liberation is to let go of all those things. So the way of to be really happy is actually to expand the comfort zone and actually expand one's horizons that, okay, well, maybe can I be, can I be comfortable around anyone of any that has any political affiliation? Can I be comfortable around anyone who sees things maybe differently than I might see them? Or can I be even, can I be open to the way they see it? Can I develop more empathy for other people? Can I develop compassion for others? So uh, that then that became the clear decision. Like, yeah, it's, I think I'm ready to go back. It's time to go back. And so um, with that attitude, it has been much better, much different coming back. It's not that there hasn't been challenges. In fact, there's been great challenges in coming back and living in community again, but uh, I'm more able to take them in stride and not, because I think uh, some of the biggest challenges I had before was based on me not being able to be flexible or it was more, it wasn't necessarily coming from the outside, although it seemed like it was like, why do you have to make me a new habit? at this time in history when everything's changing and uh, you know, well, couldn't you just wait till after the pandemic and then, <laughs> and then, you know, you could just do that. I don't know, you could just do that. And then, then I could come in. <laughs> so uh, 
yeah, even uh, I remember Ajahn Kurnadamo and I taking over as co-abbots and then Lumpur was getting ready to leave for a year. And uh, um, our first act, Ajahn Kurnadamo and I, our first act as co-abbots was to have, to have to ask somebody to leave the community, which was extremely difficult. And of course, it, it was Lumpur who said like, no, they have to go. <laughs> and uh, and But then it was up to us to ask them to leave. And I said, Lumpur, can't you just ask him to leave? Why does it have to be us? He's like, no, you have to do it. So, so it's, uh, it that was very difficult, but uh, it's just comes with the territory, and I can see now why why he made us do it. <laughs> he said, well, poor, you know, you made that final decision. Can't can't you just do it and then go on your one year break? <laughs> Uh, one thing too is uh, that's kind of difficult about living community, but also very good. And it, I think it speaks to living in society in general is uh, we tend to not want to take responsibility for our own actions. So, so karma, karma is that uh, an acknowledgement of karma is taking responsibility for our actions. So sometimes people come to the monastery and they'll actually say things like, oh, I'm at this turning point in my life. Should I do this or should I do this? So they want me to, uh, you know, decide for, for them. Like, uh, should I do it? And then, and then if I, but the problem with that is if I decide for them, then if it goes, if it goes badly, then it's my fault. So then I have to say, well, it's up to you. But, you know, shouldn't I, should I do this? Or still trying, trying to get me to decide. So we don't, we don't want to, there's it's for some reason it's hard for us to take responsibility for our own actions we want to be able to say well you know ajahn so and so told me to do it and it didn't work out it's their fault so uh it's one thing that's also good to learn in practice is to and it's meta for oneself to learn how to take responsibility and be okay taking responsibility for our own actions to actually be okay saying okay i made that decision and it didn't work out and okay now i'm just going to adjust somehow and or i held this view and then it was totally wrong and now i'm going to look at that again and i can admit that that i was wrong about that that's a very very important kind of aspect of practice that's what we call such a barami or the perfection of truth where we're very honest with ourselves i say oh yeah i i thought it was one way and then it was another way the buddha talks about this in terms of Anicca dukkha anatta, the characteristics of existence, so impermanence, suffering, and not self, is the larger part of our mind, our heart, sees sees that there are some things that are permanent, there are some things that are lasting. It doesn't think all things are impermanent. And larger part of our heart sees that, well, there is there is happiness. It's, there is, uh, it sees that, even though the Buddha ta taught that uh, all conditioned existence has the has suffering as its inherent nature. We see that well. There are some conditions that are happiness, so we see it that way. Larger part of the heart sees it that way. And even though the Buddha taught about anatta, not self, then the larger part of our heart sees that oh, uh, there actually there is, you know, there are some things that are me and mine. There are some some things that are truly mine. There is something that is truly me, and so larger part of our heart will see things that way. So 
it takes that such a barami that taking of responsibility and that looking deeply at things to really see to at least take the buddha's teachings as a working hypothesis and say well why did the buddha say all conditions have the nature of suffering you know if some things seem to be happiness and one of the reasons for that is that even though there is happiness then it changes so that's why its nature is suffering because it actually doesn't last so there is genuine gratification there is genuine feelings of happiness and things but but the fact that they change, there's going to be that sense of agitation because deep down inside, we know it's going to change. So that's why we cling to it and try to hold on to it. And then it's the clinging that is causing the suffering. So when we start to see that way, say, oh, okay, the Buddha is teaching us these things, not to just have a very dim view of the world, but actually to learn how to lessen and ultimately let go completely, ultimately to let uh to stop clinging to things it's the clinging that causes the suffering it's not that all things are impermanent that necessarily cause the suffering it's not that our happiness or our gratification changes that's necessarily the cause of the suffering and it's not that things are not self that's the cause of the suffering but it's the fact that we cling that is the cause of the suffering so so then what's causing us to cling and uh don't have the answer, so <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> That's what we have to figure out. What's causing us to cling? So we use our attention in various ways. So when we meditate, we're learning how to use our attention. We're paying attention to the breath. And then the mind wanders. So we think, well, I have to bring it back to the breath. And then the mind wanders. But if we look into why the mind wanders, that gives rise to that can give rise to wisdom because there's something inside of us that is causing the attention to wander to something else it, that's habitually more interesting than the breath. So the mind is habitually wandering somewhere else and, and part of us sees the benefit of the meditation. So we're bringing it back to focusing on the breath, but then the mind wanders off again to something else. So there's something that's compelling. There's something that's coercing the awareness so the way we use our awareness our eyes our ears our nose tongue body uh, our mind the the way we direct our sense bases so what's directing that so there is there's a director in the background so that's something we need to contemplate and think about as well there's something that is causing our awareness to pay attention to certain things it's causing our eyes to pay attention to certain things. It's causing our ears to pay attention to certain things, causing our mind to focus on certain thoughts. So to look into what is that director in the background, and it's very subtle, very hidden. So in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said that that's tanha, that's craving, that's causing the awareness to be directed in certain ways, not just sense desire, which is kama tanha, but then bhava tanha and vibhava tanha the desire to become the desire to create and the and also vibhava tanha the desire to uh get away the desire to annihilate so that's uh those three types of craving acting as a director in the background which is causing our awareness to be directed in certain ways once we start to see that a little bit more clearly and we start to see oh that i think that could have been 
could have been uh, craving, and the Buddha said craving is the cause of suffering. Clinging is also the cause of suffering, but uh, craving is the cause of clinging is the cause of suffering. So that's dependent origination. So that craving in the background, then uh, directing the awareness to start to see that process. And once we start to see that process, the mind can start to calm down a bit. So instead of forcing our mind to go back to the breath, go back to the breath, go back to the breath so we can get concentrated, uh, what we need to do is actually see the process of how our awareness is being directed and then question ourselves, why is it being directed that way? And then we can start to, the mind, it'll be easier to put the attention on the breath. So that uh, that's like spiritual qigong. That's uh, bringing our bringing our attention to the breath and settling the mind in a very natural way, uh, rather than forcing it. Because that that factor of being forceful with the mind is also going to keep it from settling, and is going to keep it stirred up. Uh, one of the analogies I like to use if we want our mind to become peaceful, it's like, uh, I don't know if anybody here has ever done adobe building. Um, but uh, when you do, when you build with adobe, when you make adobe bricks and you're gonna make it from local materials, you do a sediment test first on the materials. So you you dig from whatever area you think is gonna have a good mixture of, of sediments for your adobe bricks. And then you, 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 take that earth and you put it in a bottle with water and shake it up and then just set it still and you leave it for about three or four days, maybe up to a week. And first the coarse sediment settles, but the water is still murky. And then you wait another day and the medium sediment settles and then the finer sediments settle. And then you can say, oh, this dirt has this percentage of sand, this percentage of fine particles, this percentage of finer particles, this percentage of clay. And you'll be able to see those different layers and calculate the percentages and say, oh, it'll make a good or a bad adobe brick. So the mind is very much like that. If we just allow it to settle in a very natural way, then it's like setting that bottle there and just the different layers can start to settle over time. But if we get in there and try to force it and try to make it happen faster. It's like picking up the bottle and just shaking it again. We have to set it down again and just leave it alone and then it'll settle in a very natural way. So it's um, some things, those are, those are some ways to start to get the mind to be a little bit more settled, be a little bit happier. Something that can be very helpful too is just seeing practitioners, uh, great monks, meditation masters who've been practicing for a very long time. You know, one of the monks at the monastery recently gave a morning reflection. We do these morning, these almost daily morning reflections, just five minutes Dhamma teachings in the morning and, and we trade off the different ajans we'll give them and sometimes the more junior monks will give them as well. And uh, one of the newer Ajahns, he said, uh, he actually uh, got interested in Buddhism, not through hearing the words of a teaching, but just through watching videos of the Dalai Lama, watching an interview of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and actually not, not focusing on his teaching, but just noticing how happy he was, and just saying, oh, this, this person is so incredibly happy, 
how could how could that be possible? I've never seen this before. I think he was in college at the time. And he's never seen this before. How could somebody be so happy and just watching the interview? And I don't know what the interview was about, but just that consistently the way the Dalai Lama was reacting to these questions and just, wow, he's just so incredibly happy. And that got him interested in Buddhism. That made him want to become a monk, actually. Just like, oh, is that actually possible? I didn't, didn't think that was possible. And then becoming a monk and having the opportunity to go to Thailand and then being with Longpur Liam one day uh, as a senior, the, the current abbot of Wat Nongpapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery. So being with Longpur Liam one day who was chatting and discussing some trivial stuff with another senior monk, just maybe talking about work or something that needed to happen in the monastery. And Ajahn, and this uh, this particular Ajahn was watching Longpur Liam and not not understanding Thai, not knowing what he was saying, but just thinking, he's so incredibly happy. He's, I, I can't even fathom how happy he is right now and just discussing some trivial matter. But just the whole body language was just, this person is unbelievably happy. How is that possible? How did they get there? What did they do to be, be so consistently, so deeply, incredibly happy? And uh, a lot of these, it's everything that the Buddha talks about. We take every, you take one bit of the Dhamma, it's like picking up one part of a sheet and the whole thing comes with it. So whether it's the death contemplation or talking about generosity or cultivating goodwill, there's no place in the suttas where the Buddha said, yeah, be angry. Like, yeah, get, get irritated. Be angry about that. That's right. That's good. He never said that. So he said, he says, let go of greed, let go of anger. And uh, he's consistently just putting that in there for 45 years of the teaching that his dispensation says so uh, consistently just all these teachings about how to cultivate the mind to be better and better and better to the point where it can, we can go, we can take it as far as we want. We can take it as far as Lompur Liam if, if we want, if we really want to put everything on the line, we can do that. Or we can just be a much happier person and not, not go all the way like that. That's also possible. So there's these different levels yet householders who were uh, benefiting immensely from the Buddha's teachings and had whole families practicing under the Buddha and living really good, righteous lives. The Buddha praised raising a family righteously. So there are these different levels of practice. And so uh, none of, we can't say one is better than the other, other than, you know, if you reach the end of the practice, of course, that's going to be the best for you. It's going to be uh, complete ha happiness and liberation of, of the heart. Uh, but we, but we follow the teachings however we can and take it, take it as far as we, as far as we want to take them. One of the issues, though, with uh, practice that it's good to keep in mind is um, from Lumpur Cha. Is uh, and many of you who've read Lumpur Cha's teachings probably know about him talking about the five aggregates, the body and mind complex. The five aggregates as being like a hot, burning iron ball. That wherever you touch it, it's gonna it's gonna ultimately burn you, and uh, that's kind of a can be a hard teaching to hear or a sound a little bit harsh. And that oh, you know the 
form, the body, uh, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, anywhere I pick them up, anywhere I grab them, they're going to burn me. So that, that doesn't sound very good. So Longport Cha said, the conundrum that most people have is that he'll teach them about the red hot burning iron ball, that the five khandas are like a red hot burning iron ball. But then uh, instead of taking that teaching on, people ask him, how do I make that ball cool? And uh, he said, well, that's the whole, that's the whole problem is the nature of the five khandas is to be like a red hot burning iron ball. It doesn't become cool. You have to actually drop it if you want liberation. So that's the hard part. <laughs> that's the part that, that uh, you know, the Dhamma seems great. We see the Dalai Lama, we see Lumpur Liam. And it's like, okay, I want that. But if you want that, there's a big price to pay. <laughs> you you do have to give up. So uh, give up, give up everything on an ultimate level. It's like if you give up, if you're able to give up everything, not like uh, die, but like give up, give up everything internally, externally, be totally open, uh, give up a sense of self and ownership with this body and mind, and and take the dhamma to that point. Then yes. The, the promise is you will get the coolness that Lumpur Cha is talking about with the coolness of Nibbana and the red hot iron ball is left over here and we're far away from it. The, the heart is far away from it. But if we can't do it yet, you know, we can kind of like, ah, kind of like, <laughs> kind of be uh, juggling it still in, in a way that maybe doesn't burn us as much as it did before. That. So there's all these all these reflections that we think about, and it's good to I think it's good to talk about the ultimate aim of practice as nibbana as as liberation because it's something we can just reflect on to encourage ourselves, and it's a marathon, not a sprint. So we we can think of it we're in this for the long haul, and we're all in it together too. I remember uh, the last time I met up with Longpur Ban, I never got to meet Longpur Cha because I'm too young and I. I was 12, I think, when he passed away and uh, didn't know anything about Thailand until I became a monk, but uh, got to uh, meet other greats like Lumpur Ban, who when I when I got to last pay respects to him in 2017, then another monk with me asked him, you know, how do you train your students? And he said, I don't have any students. He said, oh, what do you mean? Because he's got thousands of students. And, he said, uh, we're all, he said, I'm a student, I'm a student of the Buddha, and all of you are students of the Buddhas. And he said, we're all in this together. It's not like I'm the teacher and you know, I'm teaching you. We're all, we're all on our different places on the path. We're all in it together. So that's a, I think that's a very lovely way to think about it as well. And um, it's all a big Dhamma family, not to raise the teachers up. If with Lungpur Cha, if he, if he saw somebody raising him up too much, he would send them to a branch monastery. If somebody was becoming too enamored with him as a personality, he would actually send them away, not let them live close to him. So uh, in our tradition, it's I really like it because it's not about raising the teachers up, but it's more about raising the Buddha up, raising the raising the Dhamma up, and the and the Sangha as a whole. So. Uh, so those are uh, those are some reflections. I wanted to end, give a little bit of time at the end, just to 
have some more quiet meditation to let let that sink in a little bit. <laughs> Just uh, we'll we'll meditate for about twenty minutes, and I think that then we can do a closing chant and and go down. And uh, if anybody wants to hang out a bit longer, we'll have the opportunity to hang out down below.